We are back. As promised at the top of the show, we need to spend a little time now what I guess you'd call it a glorified public service announcement. Our good friend Howard McKinney uh, is, is basically a regular, I would say, at this point in the program, had a role in an article many years ago with that title. And it's an interesting topic. Um, we're not going to tell you how to commit suicide, but we think we may be able to provide you some advice on how not to. To do that, I would say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Howard McKinney. Pleasure to be here. Preparatory to talking about this, we need to re-educate our audience, I think. Howard, about your background, your extensive background that makes you a, a good person to talk about this with. Well, one other important message first, of course, is that there is, should anybody be depressed or have any kind of thoughts of harming themselves in any way, since 2022, there is now a national suicide and crisis lifeline number. All you have to do is pick up your phone and from anywhere in the United States, just dial 988. Once again, it's three digits, 988. This is a service that grew out of the suicide prevention lifeline, which had existed for years, but it was transferred to just a simple three-digit number, kind of like 911, yeah. but it's 988, and that will plug you into the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So if you're having any thoughts that way, if you're not feeling good about yourself, call them. Don't hesitate. Sound advice, sir. I'm glad you started off with that. That's very important development here in this country. Yes. Your background, when we've spoken to you in the past, you told a bit about your history working with uh, in the Haight-Ashbury with uh, clinics there treating people that were, had various drug issues and other issues, including, Correct. I think, issues of you know wanting to hurt themselves, etc. And you later were instrumental in development of poison control centers. And so uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, in brief, I had worked in clinics because I just enjoyed doing that in Mexico and all over the place from when I lived in San Diego. And when I moved to San Francisco in 1973 uh, to start pharmacy school at UC San Francisco, I started working with Haight-Ashbury Clinic and got involved in rock medicine and worked Thursday nights in the pharmacy in the medical clinic and had a great time with it and graduated from pharmacy school in 1978, and that is the same year I was recruited by Ted Tong, Dr. Tong, uh, who was pharmacist on the staff at the School of Pharmacy at UC San Francisco, and Ted um, really started the San Francisco Poison Center and recruited six of us to be the original staff, and we spent all the latter part of November and most of December of 1978, basically having a crash course in toxicology and then opened the phones in the spring of 1979. And that is still there as the San Francisco area regional poison center. And I think it's fair to say that your work got replicated pretty quickly in a lot of other locales. Um, when 
we like to think of our even being an alumni of them. Um, the we like to think of ourselves as being one of the certainly one of the poison centers in the United States that really converted it to an actual clinical toxicology service as opposed to just being sort of a, an extra phone in an emergency department, as many of them were uh, prior to that era. Well, I know, Howard, you and I share uh, a, a um, an interest in keeping people from trying to end their lives, but most importantly, keeping them from some really bad choices and how they might proceed to do that. Some, some, of the, some of the ways that people try to do it are really a really bad idea. Yes, that is correct. This article, um, I was approached by Art Kleiner, who's still around, as far as I know. Hello, Art, if you hear this. It's been a while, so we should chat. He was uh, doing articles on um, a lot of topics, and he was working with Coevolution Quarterly, which is a magazine of sort of philosophical monographs about life and society and how civilization is progressing or regressing. Or it was, It's a very nice little magazine. It was a product of Stuart Brand, who's the gentleman who started Whole Earth Catalog, The Well, as it was called, in Sausalito, and a lot of really creative activities. So Art Kleiner found me working in the Poison Center and decided that he wanted to interview me. And that's how this article came about. And while he was with me, one of the first cases that uh, just happened to appear while he was interviewing I usually worked evenings and nights, and uh, one of the cases that came in was a very unfortunate individual who had attempted to kill themselves by drinking Drano, a cost. Good Lord, yes, yes, that's, yes. let's take the bull by the horns and talk about this. Uh, I, I have the article that, that you mentioned in front of me, thanks to you, and to quote from it, it said, probably the most painful form of suicide attempt, whether or not it ends in death, is swallowing lye, Drano, oven cleaner, and other household caustics. Most of us know how painful these are from 100 years ago when caustics were the preferred suicide method. Unlike suicides today who visualize themselves slipping into oblivion, people who killed themselves in the 19th century expected to suffer along the way. To which you, at that point, enter the discussion to say, well, very few people that ingest caustics actually die. Correct. And even in the 17 and 1800s, People who ingested caustics, it was not at all unusual that they would take days or weeks before they would actually die of massive infection, of bleeding, of complications that had nothing to do with the direct ingestion of the caustic. Yes. But the thing that Art picked up on, which is an angle on all this that I, I you know, did that all the time, and it hadn't really occurred to me that, wow, there's sort of, you know, several groups of people who attempt suicide by ingestion of chemicals or drugs. And there's people that do it successfully 
and die, which is tragic. There's people who think about it a lot, maybe make some motions in that direction, but fortunately call nowadays 988 or some other source of help before they actually attempt to self-harm. But then there's this third group, and that's what fascinated Art Kleiner, is the group of people who attempt suicide, but it's not successful. And this includes, for instance, people who have jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco in a suicide attempt, but lived and told their stories and had some some interactions about that. I understand you actually met two such individuals. Yes, I did. I worked with suicide prevention folks in San Francisco, and part of that was just because I worked at the Poison Center, but I took an interest in it and basically contributed toxicology knowledge to the suicide prevention workers, to the counselors on the phone. They they gave the feedback that it really helped them to kind of have an idea of when should I just stay on the call and talk to this person and when should I be ringing all the red alarms and getting the ambulance to the person ASAP. Right, the article mentions that there's a very a reasonable percentage of people are actually committing the act as they're talking on the phone to the suicide prevention, which I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Which, a whole other layer of that, of course, is we need to take a lot of care of the people who work on those helplines. Because you can imagine the PTSD sort of syndromes that you would generate by being so immersed in these events. Yes. It's tragic. But this article we tried to to put together in hopefully a constructive fashion is just describing how unsuccessful, how painful. And if you want to kill yourself, most people don't want to do it in a really painful fashion. Right. I, not to cut you off, but you, I, I can't resist mentioning that aspirin and Tylenol are also pretty high on the list of ways not to do this. That is, that is correct. It is certainly possible to die from either an acetaminophen or an aspirin overdose, but that's not as easy to do as it sounds. And one can... Uh, Let's shift over into the pharmacologist, toxicologist view of all this. Yes. Okay, I want to do this successfully, but I don't want to use a gun. I don't want to use a knife. I'm scared of heights. I'm not into that. So what, what should I choose here? And when you really think about it as a toxicologist, aspirin, acetaminophen, and caustics, there's others on the list. But those are three very commonly encountered substances that are just horrible if your goal is to kill yourself. You really have to know what you're doing to make that work. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple as just taking a glass full of it or eating a handful of the pills. Unfortunately, tragically, there certainly are people who manage to kill themselves with those agents. But what's in a way even more tragic is they just completely wreck their bodies 
but they're still alive. And now you're not only labeled as suicidally depressed, you're also labeled as being extremely physiologically damaged by that episode. One piece in the article that really struck me, Howard, was the mentioning of someone who tried to kill themselves with Tylenol and recovered and thought, okay, well, you know what? It's time to go on with the rest of my life. That wasn't what was supposed to happen. But in the meantime, the effect of the, the, the acetaminophen overdose had done such liver damage that the person did, in fact, die five days later. Correct. And basically, what acetaminophen does, is it's more complicated than what I'm saying, but essentially, there's a chemical in your liver called glutathione. And glutathione is this wonderful molecule that kind of sort of detoxifies a lot of the stuff that we encounter all the time, that as long as you have plenty of glutathione, doesn't bother you at all. But if you don't have any glutathione, you suffer some serious adverse consequences. And that's really what the mechanism of acetaminophen does, is it depletes glutathione, which is very damaging to your liver, so you die of liver failure unless you get a liver transplant. From the time this article was written till now, this is probably somewhat less of a factor, but the very next thing you, you talk about in the list and in rather colorful way was psychiatric drugs, phenocyazine drugs like Thorazine, Haldol, tricyclic antidepressants like Elevil. Every doctor has seen this in the, in, this, in the hospital setting of people that try that. It's a prescription written by Kafka. Yes. I'm depressed, so I actually do the right thing, and I go to a physician, and I say, I'm depressed, and the physician says, oh, that's terrible. Talk, talk, talk. Here's a prescription for a bunch of pills. I will specifically point out that in the era of the 1980s, this was an especially tragic, common scenario with gay males in the Castro district. Oh. Because we had the whole AIDS crisis exploding. Sure. There was huge discrimination against the gay population in the city. Nobody really understood how to take care of these patients because they just, well, that's a whole other story. It, it was a real tragedy that so many gay men became depressed through a number of very understandable pressures in their lives like AIDS and HIV and having to put up with all the discriminatory actions of other people uh, that they had to interact with in their lives all the time. It was just, it was a, a very bad time. So they would get depressed, they would go to the doc, and we didn't have a lot of the psychiatric medications back then that we have now. So the ones that we used back then were unfortunately much more toxic. And the other characteristic of them, and this is where the tragedy is, is now you're, you're a gay man, you're depressed, and your lover just died of what we now know as AIDS, and you're just like, oh, man, this is just awful. My world's collapsing. So you, you actually go to your doctor, which is a fantastically good thing to do. Mm -hmm. And your doc, in this case, back then, unfortunately says, well, here's a prescription for Thorazine or whatever, Stelazine, one of the antidepressants. 
and you you or amitriptyline and Elavil, you you start these pills, and what nobody tells you is that they take a week or so to start working at least. So three or four days later, you're still depressed. You're going, man, this stuff is not working at all. Mm-hmm. Being even more depressed, you take the entire bottle of amitriptyline of Elavil and you come in and you don't survive. Howard, I have to quote from what you said back then in the article, which was so succinct, to wit, the very population of patients currently under therapy to supposedly avoid suicide are often handed enormous quantities of medication. You might as well give the guy a gun. Except for child abuse, nothing outrages the the ER staff as much as when somebody comes in with an overdose on Thorazine, you go through their pockets and see the same doctors prescribe three or four hundred tablets in a two-week period. To which you added, these are the docs who get the phone call at 3 a.m. saying, you better get down here now and see your patient. And they just never seem to manage to show up. Correct. Those bad times. We should note that those drugs are less commonly used. They are still out there. But these days, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, etc., have, 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 have minimized this, this issue somewhat. That is correct. And I also think psychotherapy has improved fantastically in since the 80s. Well, there's hope. There, there's a lot of hope here. The, the big punchline out of a lot of this is hopefully to dissuade people from suicide attempts. Yes. A lot of these things, like I said earlier, are a lot harder to accomplish than you'd think. I'll give you another one that has nothing to do with toxicology. We used to fairly frequently see patients in the emergency department back then with gunshot wounds from the front of the skull, Uh typically right across their eyes. And what this is from is holding the barrel of a pistol to your temple, pulling the trigger in a suicide attempt. But in doing so, you just by reflex pull the gun forward with your forearm as you're pulling the trigger, and boom, now you're blind. Right. This is not an area to engage in without considerable knowledge of what you're doing. And having said that, I would hope that this is a caution to people who may be depressed enough to be considering self-harm, that... Don't do this because these things frequently don't work and they hurt. They disfigure you. They're painful. They disable you, but they don't take the depression and the pain away that led you to being suicidal in the first place. And as unhappy as you were before the attempt, you're now much more unhappy afterwards. That is correct. Morbid stuff. Well, it is, it is a somewhat morbid subject. There's no way avoiding that, the, the matter of suicide. But I think you summarized, Howard, how important it is that people do just make that phone call. Yes, I totally wholeheartedly agree. You're not alone. You may not think so, but there's always somebody who's willing to help. Somebody in your family, somebody you know, a friend, your doctor, 
your nurse, your pharmacist, or 988, the free suicide and crisis lifeline throughout the United States, 988. Yeah. Just call it and say, hey, I'm not, I'm not doing good. Can we talk? And that's what they're there for. Howard McKinney, it's always an interesting conversation when we have you on. Let's have you on again, like, next show. How's that? It would be a pleasure. We'll take this up where we left off uh, with some other interesting stories we didn't manage to get to, but I do want to have them told. We'll bring you back soon. Absolutely. Great talking to you. Someone saved my life tonight. Someone saved my life tonight. All right, we've got about 10 minutes left in today's program. I think we'll I think we'll focus on some lighter fare. If you're a fan of the Swiss chocolate Toblerone, and rest assured, this correspondent is not. Edward McMillan is. You'll be seeing some changes in packaging in the near future. Apparently, the makers of Toblerone are stripping images of Switzerland's famed Matterhorn and the Swiss flag from the packaging of the milk chocolate treat because they're moving some production to Slovakia. Eh, because wagers in Slovakia are lower than they are in Switzerland. We do note the Swiss, I think to their credit, have a law on Swissness of products. It was adopted in 2017. It aims to protect the cachet of Swiss manufacturing when it comes to foods. Two criteria have to be met. At least four-fifths of the raw materials that go into production have to come from Switzerland. I'm puzzling over that one because I'm pretty sure they ain't growing no cacao pods in Zurich. And the processing that gives a product its essential characteristics must be carried out in Switzerland. So I guess if you're going to make it in Bratislava, no Swiss flag, no Matterhorn. We presume the chocolate will remain as mediocre or delicious, your choice, as ever. I've got a big pile of articles where I have no time to go into today uh, about other leaders in other nations. There's a lot that could be said about that. But I'm just going to cite what has to be the most bizarre, in this case concerning Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Last week, he puzzled his country by tweeting what he called photo evidence of the existence of an aluxe, This is a mythical Mayan elf-like being. The president said he was sharing photos from the Tren Maya train construction site, which is a pet project of his to connect the tourist areas of Tulum with the rest of the Yucatan, and that an engineer had captured an image of an aluxe there. Said the president, everything is mystical. In fact, the photo was two years old. Analysts suspect that Lopez Obrador was trying to distract Mexicans from the fallout from his project to weaken the independence electoral body, which has triggered mass protests in the country. We at Radio Parallax would refer to this as a variation of the old Your Shoes Untied gambit. Look, there's a mystical elf! And we have some good news for people that wanted to enjoy a robust cup of coffee while adopting a cat, a group which I'm sure includes myriad people. Turns out in upstate New York, a former bank building is currently being renovated into a cat cafe. Visitors will be able to mingle with around a dozen cats while enjoying coffee and fresh baked goods, perhaps as early as this spring. Noted the Daily Gazette from Schenectady, New York, 
The Pretty Paw Lounge was conceived by Rachel Ann, a model and actress who grew up just around the corner from the building, a former bank building that was converted into a pawn shop for a brief period. Reportedly, she came up with the concept after visiting similar cafes while attending photo shoots in places like Miami and Los Angeles. And no, we confess we were unaware of the fact that in Miami and Los Angeles, there already exist cat cafes. Quote, While I was there, I just got into the habit of visiting cat cafes because I love cats. When I was visiting, I was like, wow, we don't have anything like this in Albany. And the cafe, first reported by the Albany Business Review, will also operate as an adoption center, according to Anne, who volunteers with a number of animal rescue organizations throughout the region. Kitten Angels, a local nonprofit dedicated to finding homes for rescued and abandoned cats, will operate the clinic and receive all proceeds from the adoption fees. The cafe will also sell everything a new cat owner would need to take care of their newly adopted kitten, including carriers and toys said Anne. The only revenue the cat cafe makes is the bakery. At the front of the cafe will be a small gift shop that will sell cat-related products and fresh baked goods and beverages. Yes, I'd like uh, two croissants and a flea collar, please. Reportedly, appointments will be available online to visit the lounge. There's a, a fee of $15 to do that. And guests will be able to book time with the cats that they might be interested in adopting. Now, if any of you listeners are planning on visiting Albany, New York in the spring, we'd, we'd like to hear more about this. We would be happy to underwrite the costs of visiting the Kitty Lounge. And finally, the expression, dead as a dodo, may soon be obsolete. The gene editing company that made headlines with plans to bring back the woolly mammoth now wants to do the same thing for the dodo. The flightless bird, as you no doubt know, went extinct in the 17th century, less than 100 years after Portuguese sailors first arrived on its native island of Mauritius. About three feet tall and weighing up to 44 pounds, dodos had the evolutionary misfortune of having no natural predators and therefore no extinctive fear. Always a bad thing when humans show up. Humans killed them for food while rats and pigs brought on the ships ate their eggs. The team at Colossal Biosciences has managed to reconstruct the dodo's genome, they say, but notes that bringing these species back to life is not going to be easy. They will attempt to edit the genome of the most closely related species, which is the Nicobar pigeon, so that it resembles that of a dodo. Then implant new genes into an egg and allow it to develop. The goal will be to rewild the new dodo on Mauritius with the help of local conservationists. Beth Shapiro, described as the lead paleogeneticist at Colossal, says the science developed for the project will aid in preserving modern species as well. She told Scientific American, we could have picked a lot of different birds. I happen to really love the dodo. Now, I really do hope they succeed with this project. By the way, if you ever get a chance to visit the island of Mauritius out in the Indian Ocean, we encourage you to do so. It's quite beautiful. My only complaint about it is that the roads are too narrow. The drivers are lousy, and every doggone souvenir you want to buy on that island has something to do, it seems, with the dodo. And no, I couldn't resist buying a coffee cup, emblazoned, naturally enough, with a dodo bird. This has been Radio Parallax. Our thanks yet again to Howard McKinney. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon.